Hey, hey, I'm Jimmy Bullard, and this is me old muck of Venus. We're back together, son. How are you? Hey, Bully, great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. This episode is sponsored by What Is It Good For? Absolutely nothing. Ben Wharton. Who are you? What do you do? We currently don't have a clue, but give us 40 minutes of your time. And we'll get along just fine on the Joe Marler Show. It's the Joe Marler Show. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Joe Marler and this is Tom Fordyce. Hello, Joe. Hello. I'm trying to do more of a podcast voice. Yeah, what if we did the whole thing? Like this. It'd be really shit, I think. Yeah, no, let's not do that. How are you, anyway? Um, yeah, I'm good, thank you. You're wearing shorts, despite it being a cold month. Yeah. Which just uh, underscores to me how tough you are. Let me just get my leg up. Hang on. <laughs> yeah. Look, what's that? What's that you see? It's That's... your left foot in my crotch. It's my right foot. It's your right <laughs> foot in my crotch. <laughs> okay. What do you see? I see some scarring along the, the shin no, bone. No, on my feet. A dirty boot in my crotch. No. Doc Martin. Yeah, what's happened to it? It's the laces have become undone. No, oh, fucking hell, this could be a long one. <laughs> uh, I beeswaxed them. I meant to recognise beeswax. Yes. Beeswax. Yeah, I've be- I've, uh, they look brand new, don't they? Look how nice no. they look now that I've waxed them up. No? Not like them? Well, I'm glad you've uh, beeswaxed them, Joe, because I have disappointing news from Steve who has failed to secure the neon sign that you stipulated was a must-have if you were to continue this show. Hey, that is absolutely not a problem, and I completely understand, but you knew the terms and conditions, and it's over. No, but This fo- will be our last episode, Okay, and, and now the end is here, and so you face your final curtain. <laughs> So I don't know why I'm laughing. This is devastating news. No, no. It's, it, all good things come to an yeah. end. Well, it's been and, fun. Yeah. You knew the terms and conditions, fuckface. Mm-hmm. Both of you. Fuck faces. Fuck face eye. Fuck feces. Your face looks like feces. What are you up to next week, Joe? Well, I'm, I've got it free now. But what I'm saying to you is, if you fancy getting together for old times' sake... Yeah. Talk about the old times, yeah. you know, the pod- crazy podcast days, yeah, yeah, the good yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can yeah, bring yeah. Steve along. Yeah. Why don't we meet at that studio we used to meet at? Yeah. Bring a guest along, yeah, have yeah. a little chit chat. Yeah, don't fucking bother, mate. <laughs> Where's the neon sign? Why? Where Are we any further down the line with a neon sign? Um, I'll get, I will be able to get you a neon sign. I've spoken to Sam and Billy's people. <laughs> it don't happen overnight. Like, they put a lot of planning into their show. Could you get their, Sam and Billy's one? Their neon sign is incredible. Yeah, I know. It didn't, that's, I think it was like two or three months. No, mate. If you make neon signs as a listener, can you help? It shouldn't take two or three... Oh, mm, zen. I mean, it's a, it's a proper podcast. Sorry. <laughs> Say that again. Like, they have planning meetings and all sorts. They have a set. 
Why haven't we got a set? Well, I don't know. We, we're working on it. Um, fucking hell! They've been in the game fucking two weeks. We've been going two years. We ain't got no neon sign. No, mate. You. This is bad. If you would like to help us afford a neon sign and get one made in an impossible time frame, help us grow the show on Apple. It's only one pound a week, and you can get a version of this show, which sounds like it will be ending very soon, <laughs> without adverts. And they're extra long, even when they're finishing soon. Sometimes they're 20 minutes longer, but still loaded full of good stuff. You can also do the same on Spotify. Check the link in the episode description. If you're on Apple, look for the button that says, Joe, grow the show. (laughs) Uh, That was perfect. That was perfectly read, Tom. And let's go ahead and get our very last ever guest on. Yes, uh, and what a way to go out, Joe, because the joy of this show was that we got to meet a range of fascinating and diverse people. And I think today's guest is going to be maybe the most fascinating and diverse story we've yet heard. Okay, that's a great one to end on. Love it. Let's get him in. Our guest today is Gulwali Pasale, who left Afghanistan when he was 12 years old. He now lives in Kettering. Welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me and it's good to be with you. Right, so today's episode is going to be about refugees. Do you do you class yourself as a refugee or like asylum seeker? What is there differences? What's what's the crack there? Sure. So basically, uh, refugee is just a legal terminology. I was a refugee for the last thirteen years. Well, in fact, for about five years or so, I was an asylum seeker, trying to prove to the government, to the Home Office, that I was a genuine refugee. So, the re- refugee is a very descriptive word. So anybody could, you know, if they are fleeing for their lives, for safety and protection reasons, and are seeking asylum, are refugees. But then. Uh, in legal terms, they had to prove in the country they are in to, to the government and the government has to give them that legal status. So although I was a refugee for the last 13 years, but the government took five years to decide that whether I was or not. So about a year ago, I got my citizenship. So I'm now a British citizen, but I still consider myself displaced. I usually have issues with these words, but there are differences between being an asylum seeker, being a refugee and being a migrant. And usually the media just throw these words around. Refugees are people we have specific obligation towards and responsibilities. So when people say, oh, these people in Cali are a bunch of migrants, not only is dehumanizing, but also migrants is not a bad word either. It's like, you know, you could migrate for studies, for work, for joining your family, but uh, leaving your home as a result of war and conflict and persecutions and injustices, there's a specific um, responsibility and obligation on states and duties to protect you. There's so many remarkable things about your story, Kowali. But I want to ask you, first of all, because this was really striking to me reading it, how it was the day you left when you're 12 years old. This day is not something that I remember instantly. But what I remember is my mother telling me and my brother, Hazrat, who was a year or or two older than me, to hold on to each other's hands and to not come back. And so since then, I haven't seen her. I haven't seen my mother for the last 15 years. And I very much miss her. And uh, she definitely saved us, but she also lost us. Um, and what would, what do you think would have happened to you if you had stayed rather than listening to your mum and going ahead and seeking asylum elsewhere? What, what would have happened to you? I don't know what would have happened, but I would have joined the Taliban to become a fighter to take revenge for my family members who were killed by the US forces. In that process, I could have lost my life. And uh, so, yeah, if I've stayed, I would have sadly killed people and people would have killed me. And so in a way, I'm glad I didn't. But I wish I didn't have to flee. I wish things and circumstances were different. I just, I'm just trying to picture myself as a 12-year-old having to make that journey or go on that without my parents, 
just with you with your and brother. I was you? separated from my brother as well earlier on. So before on the journey began, we were separated. So I had to travel twelve thousand miles. Took me over a year. Uh, at the hands of smugglers and traffickers and uh, some of the heartless people, some really nice people, but some really terrible people. And I was in the mercy and, and their hands. But also I met a lot of kind people. I met other refugees, other Afghans who really took me on as a friend and brother. So, so you needed to leave Afghanistan because for the fear of what would have become of you had you stayed. Mm-hmm. So what were you aiming for by leaving? We couldn't really win. And that's why I lost six, seven members of my family to the to the conflict. And I don't know any Afghan, sadly, who haven't, who hasn't lost loved ones to this war over the previous last 40 or so years. And so my family wanted us to be safe. If I have a choice, I wouldn't have left home. Even if I now have a choice, if I want to be anywhere, I want to be with my loved ones. I want to be with my mother. So your journey, Gulwali, right, how, how, does this, how does this work? How much do you or your family have to pay at the start? And the people that they're paying, how far are they guaranteeing to take you? My family paid about $8,000 to smugglers to take me to Europe. So Europe kind of meant Greece. And uh, the money is usually placed with a third party, which is acceptable to your family as well as to the smugglers. And it's, it's, it works. It's done because it's based on trust and it's based on reputation. The smugglers want to uh, come across as being reliable, as being trustworthy. They get things done, gets people to safety, get people to, you know, uh, to Europe. So... Uh, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a business. There's like the the director, there's like the CEO, the directors, the country representatives, and it's it's really well organized. And I was very impressed by it in some sense, but also quite <laughs> shocked because uh, it's a decent setup, you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like they have country representatives, they have regional representatives, they have guides, they have drivers. They like you know, there's it. I would arrive at the airport, I would arrive at a bus station, somebody will be waiting and recognize me and my fellow refugees. But the thing that was bothering me and still bothers me is the they treated us as a commodity. In most cases, these smugglers, they treated us as a commodity. They were many, making money out of our desperations. And ultimately, they exist, as I say, because governments in the West, particularly in Europe, has made it possible for them to operate. It's a supply and demand thing. I mean, I studied economics at A-level, so I kind of understand it better now be- than before because there's a demand and you know, there's, there's differences between trafficking and smuggling, if I may say, because you know, sometimes these words are used intertwinedly. Trafficking is something that is done against your will. You could be trafficked in, inside the UK. You could go and work on cannabis farms or other like slavery type works and exploitations. Even being a refugee, being on this journey, there were occasions where I was trafficked. There were things done to me against my will, putting me in a small boat in the Mediterranean, which was not fun. I could have drowned and sadly 30,000 people drowned in the last five years crossing the Mediterranean. So I could have easily been one of those people. My boat was about to be capsized. But ultimately, I was smuggled, not trafficked. You mentioned earlier that you were with your brother when you left but you lost him quite early. What happened there? So the smuggler separated us quite early on. Um, I was told by the smuggler that I'll see him at the next point, at the next destination, um, which I was upset about. I kind of resisted and I was angry. And you know, But uh, the lady, this was a lady, I was with the lady at the airport and she said, I'll see him and you know, I don't need to make a big pass about it because it, you know, I don't, we shouldn't be together because that we will be easily recognized by the authorities, by the border officials. I said, fine. And then I arrived in Iran. He was not there. Everywhere I went, I looked for him. Um, after nine months into my journey, I have heard, I have met a smuggler in Greece, a place called Patra. Um, he told me he has met my brother, which was very positive. And one of the reasons actually I came to the UK was because of him, because he told me that my brother was heading to Britain. Until Greece, I had no destination. You know, people said to me, oh, did you always want to come to the UK? We're such a great country with amazing weather. No. Um, <laughs> I, uh, actually, Britain is a great place, uh, except some of the government's policies and hostility. But ultimately, Britain is a, is a place of opportunities, definitely. But I would have stayed anywhere where I was welcome. But sadly, I was imprisoned, deported, 
as a 12 years old, not only was I not treated as a child, there were many occasions I wasn't treated as a human, particularly by authorities in Turkey, in Bulgaria, in Iran. I spent lots of perhaps over a month or two in prisons across these countries. The only place that welcomed me was Italy. But by then I knew my brother was in the UK, so I kind of ran away from a children's home, which I felt bad about even now. Um, it was strange because for the first time I was safe. People you know, showed compassion and kindness towards me. I didn't have to run for my life. I didn't have to run and, and look for food and shelter and not have to run from the police. So I was, you know, it was abnormal that this was possible to be treated with so much kindness. I thought this was not, this was not normal when it should have been the norm. So how does it work, Wally, when you're travelling? How do you, do you have a certain amount of money with you for food and drink? Do you carry money in your person? Do you give it all to the smugglers? Oh, Tom, yeah, good question. Um, <laughs> I remember one thing my mother did was quite quite useful was she um, hired some money in my underwear, uh, which was very useful. And then I kind of learned to, to hide monies in places where you're not supposed to hide money. But anyways, um, there are occasions where there are occasions you don't have no money. There are times where you have money. Sometimes the smugglers give you a pocket money. Sometimes you have no money and you just have to rely on the, on the strangers on the street. But until Greece, the smugglers were responsible for me and my fellow refugees, although they sometimes give us terrible food, sometimes give us very little food. And there were occasions where some smugglers were really kind and hospitable. They treated us as guests and, and gave us good food and kept us in nice places. But there were others who kept us in chicken coops in places where you keep animals. So it was a, really a mixture of all sorts of humanity and inhumanity, kindness and unkindness. But yeah, money was always an important aspect. So for example, um, I was deported from Turkey to Iran. We crossed the border, three o'clock in the morning, the Turkish border guards, the army opened the fence for us. And uh, we managed to escape from a, a mafia group which was taking refugees as ransom. Uh, some of the guys were taken. But anyways, uh, long story short, we were taken to this border post by the Iranian border guards. And they literally made everyone naked. We were standing in our underwears and took everybody's money. And you learn, you become street smart on this journey. I had, I had a, a few dollars. I, I had a few dollars. And uh, I just gave him one or two dollars. And I, I, what I did was I made it, uh, I ripped it in the middle. So it looks, you know, he looked at me and I gave it to him and he slapped me. The border, I was like, you can slap me, no problem, as long as you don't take my money. He took everybody's money, uh, these, these uh, border guards people. And then a few hours later, we were taken to a, a prison in a nearby city where we found out that they wouldn't give us any food. We had to pay for our own food. There were maybe 150, 160 people. And the problem was a lot of people didn't have any money whatsoever. We were, we were supposed to be deported to Afghanistan by the Iranian government, but they wanted us to pay for our own deportation. So we had to find $500 somehow uh, to pay for two minibuses to take us to the Afghan border. I, I mean, I did pay most of the money. I had, whatever money I had, I actually contributed towards it. But then I managed to run away from the police prison bus. So they didn't take me all the way. So they still owe me some of that money. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get an invoice sent. Yeah, it'd be fun. <laughs> yes, um, I'm trying to. I'm trying really, really hard to put myself in your shoes as a 12 year old. Was there at any point making that journey where you've gone fucking hell? This could actually be the end for me. This. Yeah, yeah, many, many times. I'm trying. I'm speaking to you in a very light and humorous, humorous way. I'm trying yeah. to be a comedian type yeah. guy. Even though English is my fifth language, I struggle with explaining words sometimes. But. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the first time I came close to death was walking across Turkey. So when we crossed from Iran to Turkey one night, we walk all night to cross this very mountainous terrain, um, literally walk for 10 hours or so to get to the other side. And then across Turkey, we spent a lot of nights walking over mountains and hiding, uh, kind of awaiting military and police checkpoints on the way. Uh, and I saw people basically left behind. I saw people, I saw bodies 
people who've lost their lives, basically. And so there were occasions where if you didn't have water, you didn't have food, the smugglers will just leave you. If you can't, didn't have the mis- mental and emotional strength to continue, they will leave you. I was very lucky. I had people pushing me on and friends who literally, you know, there were occasions that I wanted to give up. But the two other occasions or three other occasions where I thought, you know, this was it was time to die was when I was in the Mediterranean in the agency where we were there for three nights in three days and our boat was about to be capsized. I knew we were going to die. And I waited that so many times there. I knew we were going to die. And the thing in my head was my mother will not know what has happened to me. My family will live in hope that I'll return home one day, but I will never return home. And I was, all of us were praying, whatever prayers we could remember, whatever supplications, whatever verses from the Quran. And we couldn't, most of us couldn't swim. I can't swim. And uh, man. Coming into this, I thought you went from Afghanistan to Britain. No, one a lot trip, of back and And forth. that was it. And I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. You've mentioned at least 17 different places already. I was deported back and forth. So you, where did you end up before you ended up in Calais. So I traveled. So I, when I made it to Italy, then from there I made it to, uh, to Paris. From Paris, I spent a very cold night in, in Paris. I made it to Calais. Calais was miserable. It was a hell of a place. I was told a lot about this place, but it was nothing would have prepared me for that place. I was there for a month. Every day felt like a few days. Every week felt like more than a week. I attempted about 100 times to get to the UK and back up a refrigerator. Tr- I'm having trucks and lorries, and I managed to get a back and a back up a refrigerator truck, which was very dangerous very similar to the one we saw a few years ago, uh, 39 Vietnamese uh, people lost their lives in because they were suffocated. I mean, mine was, the difference was it was behind a, a, a trailer, so there was a driver in the front. It was not just a container like the one people have lost their lives in. But if you are in there and, you know, it's very difficult for the drivers to hear you because it's a, a sealed a refrigerator, freezer, basically. And how do you actually get into the truck? So if you're you're in that the, the tent, basically the tented camp, yeah? And the lorries are behind high fences. How do you get on? Okay, so that's inside information now. Okay, so basically, Tom, what happens is um, every night we used to walk. So we used to walk to this uh, gathering place. of We call it a fireplace where we used to have fire, have some tea, catch up with like our friends. And so then at 9 o'clock, uh, 10 o'clock in the evening, we will go to this fireplace from there. Then we will walk to uh, about two, three hours to a bridge. There was a bridge which was... Uh, Near uh, near railway track, there we will meet our smuggler. If we don't meet them at the fireplace, and the smuggler then will take us to some far away lorry park. So it was not just we were not getting on lorries near the fence. We were we were walking three, four, five hours, sometimes even six hours, especially both ways. So we'll go to these car parks where the lorries, the drivers were resting, and they were basically drank a bit more than they should have. They were they didn't know what was happening in their trucks. So we'll try to get into trucks, and the the most like. A uh, thing that really used to upset me was that driver would wake up six, five in the morning saying, look, get out of my, my truck. I'm like, could you please take us to the fence? Because at least we don't have to walk three hours back to the jungle. Uh-huh. Just take us to the fence because there the French used to give us coffee. The British sometimes used to give us tea if they found us in the in the back of the... At least then we were near the lunch place. We were near the place where we used to gather. So, yeah, it was very frustrating when they used to take kick us out from their trucks, uh, lorries in the morning in cold. This was November. And so, yeah, we used to walk a lot to get into these lorries and sometimes the lorry will once took me to Belgium by mistake once took us to Germany oh, so you could like, so you never you know and once I burnt my face with chemicals in the back of a truck which kind of yeah bothered me for many years my face was burnt and uh, I thought it was some sort of beans or something but it was actually like coal or some other type of chemicals like you know um, used for electricity whatever so there was a lot of um, interesting adventurous uh, stories so you arrive in the UK mm-hmm. eventually mm-hmm. And you're in this refrigerated freezer that's not been turned with six on. six other people, yeah. With six other people. 
you arrive where? Dover? Is it uh, Dover? You... We came across Dover. Uh, yes, we came across Dover. The lorry stopped near London. I think it was Darfur. Now, I, when I look, look through my files, I see it was somewhere near Darfur. The, the banana, it was banana, full of bananas. Unfortunately, the bananas wasn't ready to eat. I did try to see, to check. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, it was. And then the police arrested us. So when the driver right. opened the door, okay. he saw us and then he closed it back very quickly. And then the police came, and then that's where kind of our other journey uh, and experience began. The British police was nice, polite, not so much so as the Italian, but they were much better than the French and in the rest of the, the the world that I cross half of the world. But yeah, and then the 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 journey of climbing asylum began, which took five years, as I was saying early. So let's say, Gawali, that Joe and I have got off a lorry and we've been arrested in Dartford. What happens next? What happens that first day? So basically, they take you to the police station and then you stay there for 24 hours. They take your fingerprints. They question you basic questions of who you are and, and so on and so forth, how you get here. So like very basic initial process and interviews trying to figure out. And then they pass you on to the immigration authority. So then they draw us all the way back to Dover, which was kind of freaking me out because I thought they were deporting us back to um, France. Uh, which the government now wants to actually do that. Um, they used to send people back through the EU mechanism, but now they want to do. They want to send people to any country who would have them, basically. Uh, and so, yeah, then you start the process of you. You know, you have your kind of basic initial asylum interview with immigration officials in Dover or anywhere else in the country. The immigration um, offices, like in Leeds or Manchester or whatever, Liverpool. And that journey, that experience, took me, you know, two years to get the government to accept that I was an Afghan national. Actually, they wanted to deport me twice, uh, but I was like, "Why are you guys sending me to?" Because don't believe I'm from Afghanistan. You know, that doesn't make sense. You're going to deport me to Afghanistan, but you don't believe I'm from Afghanistan. And uh, yeah, quite dehumanizing. So the process is such, Tom and Joe, the first thing they will do is like, you are guilty and you have to prove yourself innocent. So the asylum system that we have in this country is, it lacks compassion, it lacks humanity, and you're seen as a statistic in number. You're not individuals, you're not human beings, you're just some sort of political tools, basically. I was in a limbo for five years. I didn't know what's going to happen to me. I had, I had no plans, no future. I just, I'm just fucking blown away by how you're coping with all of this as a 13 year old. Mm-hmm. Well, and the first thing they did was make me not 13. So then I was treated all throughout this process of asylum interviews and a social service age assessment. I was sitting around a table in Folkestone with five strangers after four hours of discussion telling me, Gulwali, you're not 13, you're 16 and a half. And then spelling my name wrong, spelling my date of birth wrong, even though they had my home office identification card in front of them. And so, yeah, it was really, really bizarre experience. And then going through um, asylum interviews in Croydon where the immigration official treating me as an adult when I wasn't. So I was never really afforded uh, the benefits of the doubt or the benefits of being a child. They assumed you were older than you were they because... They didn't know I was 16 and a half because I was too smart and intelligent. I was like, I can't help it. Uh, <laughs> Joe had the same issue, didn't you, Joe, when you were... I was same but different. When I was arrested at uh, 14 because uh-huh. I got in a fight... And I was put in the back, <laughs> in the back of this police van with my two mates, taken down to the station, and we spent the night in the cells, each in a different cell. Same, we did the same. Yeah. And I was like, they were like taking details. How old are you? And I was like, well, I'm I'm fourteen. They're like, yeah, good one, mate. And I was like, because I was bigger than my two mates sure. who were sixteen. And I was like, no, no, I'm fourteen. They're like, yeah, okay, shut the fuck up, get in the cell. And I was like. Okay, fine. I don't know what's going on here, but by all accounts, sure. they didn't believe me either. And you're meant to have a a, um, a responsible adult if you're under a certain sure. age. 
clearly you weren't going to be able to go, oh, I've got a responsible adult with me. No. Fucking hell. And so this issue is, now I realise, it's about money. It's about, because if you're underage, they had to give you the rights as a child. They had to find your foster placement, a care home, a school, and then it costs, there's money. And so, for example, Kent Social Services has been struggling with unaccompanied minors because most people arrive there and they have the parenting responsibility. So it start, the system we have is uh, really, really inhumane. And this idea people come here because we are a soft touch and because there's like benefits. Asylum seekers can't work and they can't get benefits. They had to survive on £5.60 a day. So, for example, just today I got a train from Watford to London. It was more than £6. So how do you expect an asylum seekers to live on £5.60 uh, a day? Uh, during the pandemic, the government kindly increased it by 20 pence uh, a week. What a treat. Yeah, yeah, 20 Thank pence you. a week, yeah. Wouldn't, After you, a lot wouldn't of struggle. even get you a Mars bar. Exactly. Fuck's sake. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just, you just mentioned it there that there's a lot of attitudes out there, general attitudes that would be like, oh, these immigrants are it's coming over and yeah. stealing our jobs and all this stuff. And rubbish. you're like, hang on. Where the fuck are you getting that information from? Because you dig a little bit deeper. You speak to the people on the ground and you've just described that you get 5.70 a week, yeah. uh, 5.70 a day, yeah. 37 quid a week. You get a lot more in Germany. You get a lot more in France. And so this idea, this myth that people come here for our benefits and our soft touch is not true. And also, actually, you know, I have so many friends, refugee friends. Actually, I'm going to meet some tonight, hopefully. Um, they're scientists. They're accountants. They're Uber drivers. They're they work in restaurants. They work in takeaways. They, you know, serve people here. So they pay their taxes. They're law-abiding citizens. And I met this Syrian man, um, learned his English. He's actually studying economics uh, and management degree at Open University. He's passed his driving test, got engaged. He actually opened a, a falafel takeaway in Darlington, and he's employing three people. And so in four years, he has done things that people don't do in their entire life. And I was a bit quite embarrassed. Like, what have I done in my 15 years of my life? But look, it's amazing. So when you give refugee a chance, they will make a difference. They will have an impact. We are not in the top 10 countries for receiving refugees. We're not even in the top 20 for receiving refugees. In fact, we are number 25th in the world for hosting refugees. We host less than 1% of the world's refugee population. There's so much myths. There's so much hatred and fear towards refugees and asylum seekers. When, in fact, last year we had about 30,000 asylum applications. France had five times more. Germany had seven times more. Sweden had more. And there are people waiting, over 100,000 people waiting in the system for more than six months. Some, I have friends who waited for 10 years to get a status. So they're in a legal limbo. They survive on food banks and handouts and charities. So... There's a lot wrong. The system is broken, but pretty pretending the government is fixing it the wrong way. They're blaming, they want to blame everything on refugees and asylum seekers. In fact, you will not find us using the NHS. You will find us actually working in there. You will not find us being a burden on schools. You will find people, you know, a lot of my friends are actually teachers. So it, this idea that I know we are a burden, I'm not a burden on society, and so is my most of my friends. And, uh, yeah, I, just, I could go on and on. But I feel like it's important to hopefully educate people, and that's what I've been trying to do. Where, Tom, where, I don't know whether we've talked about this before, but, and this might be slightly controversial, but where does it come from mm-hmm. that, so I, pl- I play rugby for England every yep. now and then, and they talk about this patriotism and singing the national anthem and the sort of pride you have in your country. Why? Where does that come from? Obviously, it comes from people who fucking the discover these countries yeah. and the, all that lot. The British draw but lines, like, yeah. Hang on a minute. Why, why is it that... Because I was born in England. I was lucky enough to be Indeed. born in a country that isn't war-torn, that has got great education. That's I I'm, grow up with fucking meals, plenty of them, may I add. <laughs> um, clothes on my back. And I'm lucky to do that. But people like yourself that 
are born into war-torn well, countries. Well, you're born as an accident of birth. It's a country. It's it's a fucking part of the world. Somebody tweeted, why do all refugees try to come to the UK? Because that's the myth in the media and from politicians. And the Refugee Council responded, um, the following countries host more refugees than the UK. Turkey, Colombia, Pakistan, Uganda, Germany, Sudan, Lebanon, Bangladesh, Ethiopia, Iran, Jordan... Congo, Chad, Kenya, Cameroon, France, the US, South Sudan, uh, China, uh, Egypt, Iraq, Sweden, uh, Tanzania, Niger, India, even Yemen, Austria and Rwanda. So basically most of the world refugees, 85% of the world refugees are hosted by developing countries, by poorer countries. Only one in nine people comes to Europe. Uh, nine of them are hosted in this poor, uh, for example, five million Afghans are hosted by Iran and Pakistan. About eight million Syrians are hosted by the neighboring countries. So yeah, I just don't get why people can't find this information and trying to be, uh, yeah, trying to be informed and, and not use bigotry and hatred and, 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 and fear. Uh, I was recently in a place near um, near Lewis. There was a small town, Holsham, I think, Holsham. Holsham. Holsham, a little, little yeah, place. Yeah. And this couple I was staying with in Airbnb, lovely couple, they said, oh, one of the problems people have with refugees is that they say we got a Syrian family in a village nearby a state and they got a house, they got benefits, they got support. And there are people who are struggling in that state. I said, well, if that Syrian family had not arrived there, these people would still be struggling. It's not the fault of the refugee family. And I said, what actually, what is the family doing now? I said, oh, two years, they have a, they opened a Syrian restaurant and they, you know, they, they have, they're providing jobs and opportunities in Syrian food in, in the, this little town. So these people who have, who are struggling, they want to blame when they see, you know, people getting support and they're not being supported. It's the fault of the state. We need to help these people achieve their aspirations and help them with employments and opportunities. It's not my fault. It's not the fault of refugees that people can't get a school placement or can't get a doctor appointment or can't. I haven't been to the doctor for two years, like touch wood. Uh, and so like, you know, this, this, this thing that people have, people wants to blame others for their problems and they're blaming the wrong people. They need to be making the government accountable, blaming Im- their MPs. You know, they are MPs who take 100,000 salary and still claim small expenses but then doesn't want to decrease inequalities and, and, and find solution to child poverty and other issues. I mean, we are the fifth richest country in the world. It's not about money and resources. It's just that the politician wants us to blame the wrong people. It's very easy sometimes, Joe, isn't it? If you just do something simple, like you flip it around. So um, imagine that you and I have been born in Afghanistan and Gawali, you've been born in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're in a war-torn country, Joe, that's war-torn partly because of the actions of the British government. Indeed. And something happens to you and Daisy thinks that the future for Jasper is grim, that he's going to be forced to join the Taliban, and she sends Jasper to the UK, you'd want and expect the UK to help him. Indeed. 100%. Simple. And I wouldn't understand if they didn't. I, I, wouldn't, I, I, I can't get my head around it. Now I, know, now, I know that there, there's going to be certain cases, minority cases of people refugees where they have come over and they've committed crimes people are they, people but that's people that's that's not just refugees yeah, that's everyone in the world yeah, there's yeah. bad people wherever you go i'm not stupid enough to think that just let everyone in wherever they want to go travel around the world wherever you want to sure. go live live it's a free world peace and love man you know like I'd love that to be the case. But, but Joe, I've been to saying, me, let's take our fair broken. share. Let's take our fair share. So, for example, this is what I've been arguing and campaigning for. If we did our fair share, that would mean, you know, we will be taking, you know, at least 50,000 uh, refugees a year because there are 80 million displaced people in the world. There are 30 million refugees. Half of them are children. We need to invest in these people. And ultimately, we should end wars and conflicts. These Afghans who are fleeing for their lives. We saw the images in August of people clanging onto planes and literally dropping from the sky. 23 million Afghans, according to the UN, are in need of food, 
literally basic necessity. I talk to my family, my mom, literally in the village, they need, they need flour, they need rice, they need oil. The prices are doubled. There is no money in the economy. Hospitals are not being able to provide equipments and, and, and medicines. So things are very bad. So the U.S. and the U.K. were comfortable in actually allowing the Taliban to take over, now uh, basically punishing uh, the public and the population. So these Afghans will not be fleeing for their lives if things were done differently. I just think you, you've hit the nail on the head there that we need to open up our arms a little bit wider and our hearts, take our yeah. fair fair share because how is it possible that one of the top countries in the world in terms of uh, finance, power, resources, etc., a 25th in the list of how many... Hosting refugees. How's that, Tom? How's that? That's ludicrous. What's What's that based on? What is that based on? It's based, I think, on a political calculation by certain people that appearing to be tough on a demonised section of the population will get you back in power. And I have been, I have been told this by people as well as politicians saying, "Oh, if you are nice and kind and welcoming, that that will send that will send the wrong message." And this hostility and this deterrence hasn't worked for 20 years. Joe, we spent £220 million in Calais and fences and securitization. The reason people are coming in small boats is it, as a direct result of our securitization. They can't come through lorries and trucks, which is also dangerous, but not, you know, you don't see them because the media have been focusing on these small boats. They're coming on small boats because of Brexit, because of COVID, and because precisely because we spend so much money on security, people can't get through. There's a X-rays, there's machines there, they can detect oxygen and you can't get through. There are dogs, there are cameras, there are seven fences in Calais. So then people make desperate journeys and I think with this new bill, with this, this attitude that we have towards refugees, people will die sadly because of our policies. Right, I need, I need to have a little break for... I'm getting a little bit pent up here, Tom. Mm. Can you feel it? Yeah, I can. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to decompress for a second. This episode is sponsored by the following... Becky Rollerball Dyson Alex the Colonel Sanders Matt and his Johnson Andy Walk on Walk on Walker Proud Mary Dave the Viking Darking John Boy Walton Robert Duran Giroux Half Pint Julie Lowry He's not dead He's R James Dean Eric the Windy Rhino Who Fares Wins It's Matthew Fares the notorious B.E.G., it is Becky Eaton-Garrett. The Swindler, Josh Swindles. The Bounty Hunter, Alistair Boundy, Greg the Eagle Edwards, and the locksmith, Jordan Playlock. To be more like all of them, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show, become an official sponsor, and grow the show today. Shrink the Box is back for a brand new season. This is the podcast where we put our favourite fictional TV characters into therapy. Join me, Ben Bailey-Smith, and our brand new psychotherapist, Namone Metaxas. Hi, Ben. Yes, this season we're going to be putting the likes of Tommy from Peaky Blinders, Cersei from Game of Thrones on the couch to learn why their behaviour creates so much drama. So make sure you press the follow button to get new episodes as soon as they land on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shrink the Box is a Sony Music Entertainment original podcast. So those were the ads, and while we had those ads, Joe, I was just looking at your face and working out what you were thinking and working out if you were thinking the same thing as me. We're both parents now. I keep putting my kids in the position of Gawali. Do you? Yeah, 100%. And in the position of Gawali's mum. And that, yes, that's a really tough decision to make, but... (sighs) You one you have to make, and 
but one you shouldn't have to make, especially when the way you've explained it, Gowali, is basically the Western world is to blame for your current situation. Mm -hmm. Your first experiences of Britain, what were they like? Because there is a view of Britain, which is unrealistic, that a lot of people who haven't been to Britain before have, and it's your your Merchant Ivory Britain, it's your Downton Abbey Britain, and it's a lanjo of rolling green fields, country houses and politeness. But you, Gowali probably saw a very different side of britain did you when i arrived things were things were difficult you know when i was in kent living there i experienced racism from people who call me names and telling me go back to your country and so on and so forth and the 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 huge kind of discrimination i saw was from the state i think people valued me people were kind to me it was the the establishment which was the people in power who were making my life difficult actually you know things became so bad that i lost hope i didn't lose hope on the journey up 12,000 miles 10 countries but i lost hope when i was safe and secure so the UK did provide me with physical security, but actually mentally and emotionally it really damaged me and made me give up hope and dehumanized me to the extent where I thought there was no point to life. Actually, it's not something I feel comfortable talking about, but I committed suicide twice because I thought, you know, what was the point of life? Yeah, so the experience has been mixed, especially in the early days. But once I was able to go to school, I was fostered in Bolton by a wonderful couple who provided me warmth and family and, and support, which I needed the most. You know, what I had their a, names? Uh, Sean and Karen. They were amazing people. They, they foster some of the most challenging kids uh, um, and nobody else would take them on. And I had an amazing time with them. We were, we were very close. We were still a family. We were very close friends. And um, I visit, I go, and I, I think there's a lot of goodwill in the UK. And I think the government doesn't represent us. There is a, there's a minority, and I feel a sizable minority since Brexit, who have issues with people like me. But uh, ultimately, um, Britain is a good place and the people are good. I, I think my experience of traveling across the UK and the world had made me realise that generally people are good. I mean, look, we, we, we three got on well and we have a lot in common than our differences. You really haven't read the room particularly well, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Tom's an arsehole, uh, just to clarify. He's, yeah, he's a really fair. nice guy. And I'm a helmet. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Steve's all right. Steve's all right. And, um, Amazing. you still got family in Afghanistan, I presume. Mum, yes. Dad, where, where are your family at that you, that you, that you left? So my, when, when I left, my family was mostly in eastern Afghanistan, a place called Nangarhar, um, Jalalabad city. But now my family is uh, in Kabul, my mother, my siblings. Um, sadly, a lot has happened since I've been here. The sacrifice that you make as a refugee. I got married a few years ago in Denmark and my family was not here. And I would love for my mom to be there and to have witnessed that. Um, particularly, my, Sadly, so since being here, my grandmother passed away, who I was very close to. My little sister passed away, I was not there. My uncle recently passed away. So my brother got married, my sister got married. We have a huge addition to the immediate family, children and, and, and grandchildren and so on. So all these occasions that I have missed out. So it's a, it's a sacrifice being a refugee. And I constantly worry for them, especially now since the last six months. Things have been very, very tough and challenging. Uh, before, I mean, things were bad. There was, you know, suicide bombing. My mother would say, my little brother will go out to the city. She didn't expect him to come back alive. And I've heard stories of people saying, you know, when we left home, we, we will do our goodbyes. We go to schools and universities. So things were basically live in Afghanistan was by chance. It's that sense of powerlessness, Joe, that's getting me that you'd be sitting here and all the people you cared about most in the world are still back home. 
and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't help them. You can't feed them. You can't protect them from danger. Are you able to help them in any way? I'm trying. So I used to be able to send money through Western Union and then they stopped its operation and then they started again. But then there was huge queues outside banks because there is no physical money in banks. People are not being able to take out their own money. So only people are allowed to take like $200 a week or a month. So I've been able to support my family. But my mom says, you know, she gets, you know, literally 20, 30 women coming to her for help. And she's, she loved to help us, like, how am I supposed to give flour and rice and oil? And everything, the price of everything has doubled. So, for example, a loaf of bread would be like 50 cents. Now it's one pound. Uh, oil, flowers, my brother was saying, you know, you could get 18 pound, uh, 50 kilo of flour. Now that's like almost 25 to 30 dollar. Uh, I don't know about you, Tom, but I'm feeling, I don't know how to, how to say it without coming across like I'm pitying the situation or that I'm being insensitive about, but I feel a huge amount of gratitude and I feel very, very lucky that I've often taken for granted. I take to, this for granted. To, I complain to, about to things. Be, to be in this this country, to be born here and what needed, sort of now everything that's going around in my head of like, well, I want to make sure that my kids, I've got four kids, I want to make sure that they understand how lucky they actually are and to embrace that and not take it for granted at being here because they could be a 12-year-old that doesn't get the opportunity to travel across the world in whatever way you had to do it, that you ended up having to stay there and you mm-hmm. actually join the Taliban and you end up having to kill people or risk being killed yourself. That it's not, and you always think that it's a million miles away, don't you? You always think, well, no, going to happen to me. I didn't think no, this would happen not, to that's me. That's not going to happen. Uh, that that's not. I can't I relate had a comfortable to life. you. I mean, I, I didn't think it would happen to me either. And you know, then some people write to me on social media like, "Oh, you are a, a coward. You are a, you are you, you are a traitor. You should have stayed and fight for your country." That's what I wanted to do. But my family decided that was not the solution, which I'm grateful for them <laughs> keeping me alive. But also, I go to schools and I talk to young kids and young people about. They know they're fortunate. They should not take things for granted. There are literally millions, two, three hundred million children across the world would love to have what we have, you know, education, opportunities. We shouldn't take anything for granted. The peace, the security, our families and our loved ones. I tell kids, you know, uh, we have disagreements with our parents, but be kind to them. And, you know, I used to take my mother and my family for granted and I haven't seen them. And, uh, you know, I lost my father to the conflict and I haven't, you know, now I'm trying to be the best husband or the best father I can be to my daughter and to my wife. And it's just, it's it's tough. Like all these things kind of, you know, I just, we were discussing earlier on about being kind of ungrateful or complaining. I was complaining about the traffic and I was complaining about <laughs> the, the trains and everything else. It was so bad just, traffic. For yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But there are bigger problems in the world. And I think we need to, I hope this discussion that we have put things into perspective for people. You were sent off with your brother. Yeah. Was he younger or older? He was a year or two older than me, yeah. year or two older. Did you find him? What, what, yes, I what found happened? him. That's a wonderful story. So I was living in this place, um, a place called Appledore in Kent. Uh, it was a centre for unaccompanied minors. There was 20 of us living there. And uh, I've been trying to find my brother. The government was like, oh, there are 60 million people here. We can't help you. I was giving him his date of birth and everything, except they have changed it, obviously. They change people's date of births. It's like a normal thing for social services to do. And um, it just happened. Um, one day there was a trip to London. I protested out of the centre. I walked out of the centre because of the age dispute I had, the nationality dispute. I was just angry, trying to exercise my free will or my my right to protest. And then that backfired and (laughs) I had nowhere to go. I I had to come back and apologise. I walked for an hour. There was a place called Staple Hearts near Tamridge Well. We used to go to Friday Prayer to Tamridge Well. We used to take a train from Staple Heart to Tamridge, from Tamridge to Tamridge Well. 
And then, so I made that journey and I went to the mosque and I was like, nobody there. So I come back and um, next day there was a trip to London, which I was supposed to go on to see the galleries and museums and things like that. And then I didn't go on out my, as a punishment of me walking out of the center, which was understandable. And the guys went in the evening, late evening, they came back saying, oh, guess what? Guess who we met? I was like, I don't care who you met. Don't talk to me. You see, I'm upset. Like, <laughs> I haven't gone on this trip. <laughs> 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 exactly. And they're like, oh, we met your brothers. It was really amazing because, um, which I didn't expect it. They knew I had a brother here. And so... They were somewhere near London Isle Tower Bridge. Uh, so they were just like talking to people. My brother had a trip from Manchester College. He was studying at Manchester College at the time. So they just came across and started talking to each other. They're like, oh, we know a guy who speaks as fast as you. So my brother recognized him. They were new Afghans. And then he came over to them saying, hi, when, where, where, when are you guys come? What are you guys doing? They were a group of like, you know, 15, 20 Afghans. We had a guy who looks like you, who speaks as fast as you. And you know, then it was amazing. Then he called me the next day. He was there a few days. No later. Was, fucking yeah, way. Through faith in faith, yes. No fucking way. They've yeah. gone, oh, we know someone who talks as fast as you. May I add, you do talk really fast. <laughs> and I actually, I really enjoy it. I Thank let you. The, twofold, because it means that I have to concentrate even harder yeah. to go, oh, God, he's going he's gonna to catch me out at some point. I need to, I can't just, I like it a lot. Manchester, random trip. You haven't been allowed to go. Yeah. It was amazing. My heart is really warm. I, that's why I told you the story. It's a lovely story. It's in, it's more, it's in a more, much better details in the book because I wrote it with the help of a writer and a journalist because my, as I said, English was my fifth language. I tell boring stories, but ultimately it was a wonderful thing. And I think, you know, and also looking in hindsight, if I may say, I'm glad the smuggler has separated us because at the time that was one of the worst things that could have happened to me. But then by separating us, the smuggler have done something very smart and strategic because there were occasions where I was separated from my closest friends. I was once fitted into the seals of the train, in the seals of the train, just one small compartment. Uh, so my brother couldn't fit there with me. There were occasions where I was separated from my closest travel companions. And if me and my brother were together and we were deported to Iran, we would have just gone home. Uh, so the, the determination to find my brother was one of my main kind of objectives and also not letting my mothers down, having hope and faith, things will work out. I mean, I would have easily given up if he was with me. I would have convinced him, uh, like, bro, this is not worth it. Let's go back. Because one of the reasons kept me going was trying to find him. And I think, you know, things happen for a reason. So I'm in, in life, I tell people, you know, sometimes we go through experiences where it could be the worst thing that happens to you. But a few years later, you realize it was for your benefits. It was for your good. And so it did me a lot of good that we were separated. I mean, I go to Italy and I tap up a lorry engine on my own. Uh, and so my brothers couldn't be with me on the top of a lorry engine. So I was able to do things because he wasn't with me. That is, for me, Joe, the very definition of glass half full. <laughs> yeah, he's nailed it on that one. That is, I just love the fact that, that that feeling you must have had, actually, when you first spoke to him, like, he called, I couldn't believe oh it. Oh, my yeah. God, I can't believe it's you. Yeah. That's incredible. And I was glad he was, because I knew he was alive and... Because I met this smuggler in Greece, he told me that he was heading to the UK and he was looking for me, which was very positive. This was like nine months into my journey. Nine months was a long time on this journey, you know, a month in prison, back and forth, deportation, hunger, and, and there was a lot of things happening and I was in basements for weeks and months. And so I was really pleased to finally hear that he was alive and he was, you know, he was heading somewhere. And um, I met a, one of his friends in Rome who actually helped me, amazing guy. He helped me to get to Paris, uh, got me clothes, take me home. He was a lovely guy. When you finally met him, so after the phone call when you're going to physically meet for the first time, did you play it cool? Did you just walk up and say, all right? Or did you? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. No, he came out, he was quite, he was quite fat. I have become fat. <laughs> like, bro, what's, what's happening? Yeah. You've got, Jesus Christ, brother. You've, oh, you've had a good Christmas, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, yeah. And I was very pleased to meet him and, um, you know, he was, he was safe. And, and then I tried to move with him to Manchester. Then there was a lot of bureaucracy I wasn't allowed. And, yeah. We had a lot of ups and downs. And then um, 
my brother is okay now, but he had a lot of mental health issues and he actually was, he had to go back to support our family. He actually took a huge risk to go and support our mother who was in danger and he spent three years there. Things didn't work out. He got kidnapped and then he, by the Taliban and all sorts of things happened to him. And then he came back, made a second journey and the home office was like, oh, if you can spend three years in Afghanistan, you can spend your life there. Just go back. And I was like, really? So it took me seven years to get the home office to give him his refugee status. I hope you're going to back me up in, in this one, Tom, please. But when I say I hope, that's like an indication that if you don't... It's bad news. It's bad news. Okay. But I'd say 85 90% of the time that we've been around you, you've had this big smile on your face. Yeah. And you, the way you've spoken and the, the warmth you've shown us and the warmth at which you speak... I love it. It's, 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 and yes, there's been stuff that you've you've highlighted that get you down and that you're disappointed in that needs changing, particularly about policies and government and all the paperwork and the bollocks that you have to fucking go through that needs changing. And also the attitudes that a lot of people need to change towards refugees, asylum seekers, and even to the point of the differences, which you've educated me today of immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, whereas you're not all under one umbrella. It's very different. So you've you've got this warmth about you, and you're a great you character. Warm. Thank you. But you've gone through some pretty horrific trauma. You, has that whole experience? It's clearly changed you. But where do you sit with how it's changed you? Thank you. That's very kind of what you have said. Um, I used to be very bitter and angry, and then I realized it doesn't get me anywhere. If I want to get my message across, one of the issues I have is I speak fast. I've been trying to practice to speak slow, and then I was like, if I'm speaking fast and I'm better, that wouldn't help. So. Um, <laughs> I think we. I think humans. You guys have been quite warm to me, so I, you know this has been a mutual, um, mutual situation. But uh, it's hard because when I look at the situation in Afghanistan, something that I didn't think would would, would happen, and the suffering of my people and my family and my loved ones, and basically I've seen things, Joe, that people that you can't imagine. I have gone through experiences where I've seen my family die, my family being killed. I've seen people houses burned down. I've seen people killed in front of me. There was a story. It's actually in the book. Um, the Taliban basically stoning a woman to death. I've seen people, American soldiers, sh- uh, shooting at a car and killing a pregnant woman and her family in a car. I've seen where suicide bombing where wiped out a whole family in a, in, a, in a car. So all these things, I'm trying to move on. And I think what has helped me is, you know, being busy, being active, my going to university. You know, it has helped. But you know, when I see stories of people drowning, when I see um, people dying, you know, there's been thirty thousand people who died in the last few years. Refugees crossing borders. It just resonates. It brings back memories. I have I have many many sleepless nights, and I think last night was also quite um, tough for me because I saw some videos of Afghans, uh, you know, Afghans mistreated in by the Taliban also. But I saw some videos of Afghan children, women bagging on the street in the cold in snow in Kabul. It breaks my heart. So. And it kind of makes me feel guilty that I'm safe and secure. My family. I keep telling my wife, you know, we need to be grateful. We need to be, you know, appreciate things and. Uh, not complain too much. But yeah, so it's it's hard because I have lived a life which perhaps was similar like 100 years ago in the UK and then suddenly I'm here. So I've lived uh, two, three different types of lives and I constantly think about these people who are less fortunate. The least we could do is to be kind and compassionate, you know, simple things, doing what we can as individuals. Yeah. Do you ever have nightmares? About yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, for many years, um, wake up and, you know, scared and uh, I usually try to not stay on my own that also scares me yeah this experience it doesn't really go away uh, but when I'm busy and, and active that helps I have had some counseling it hasn't really helped a lot of asylum seekers uh, most of most of refugees actually have traumatic experiences not only in the journey but also their 
home countries like the Syrians, the Afghans, the Iraqis, the Eritreans, the Somalians, like all these people who are coming from war-torn countries, they have things, seen things that we can't imagine. Wally, you've been absolutely amazing. Thank, I'd you. Lo- thank you so much for coming with your story. Thanks for having me, and um, I hope you, you educate a few people and get them to appreciate things and not take things for granted and just do their research. Don't believe like what you hear in the media and from politicians. So I think you know you guys are doing a very noble work, and this is perhaps my thousand two hundred interviews interview they have done. But <laughs> I've one. been trying. I think I really enjoyed it. Actually, yeah, we had not, a good not conversation. The best, but yeah, the, yeah, he, he really enjoyed it. He didn't actually answer. He skipped over the answer. It's fine. <laughs> I just studied politics. So. <laughs> <laughs> and your book, Gulwali, is called "The Lightless Sky: An Afghan Refugee Boy's Journey of Escape." to a new life in Britain. It's a bestseller in three categories and, and Kindle. I'm trying to be humble, but yeah, <laughs> check it out. <laughs> Thanks very much, mate. Thank you, guys. Cheers. On Joe Marler's show. Joe, I'm looking at your face. You're looking at my face as I look at your face, looking at my face. And I'm sensing that our conversation with Gulwali has changed your perspective on things. Yeah, it has. What an incredible human being. The warmth and... The connection he he made with us, considering all that he's been through and the tough journey that he's had to get here, what a bloke. I just kept thinking about Jasper, Maggie, all my kids and how fortunate they are and making sure that they, you know, grasp every opportunity that's given to them in this world because it could be very different all based on where the fuck they were born. It made you realise, didn't it, how little material things matter? Yeah, it did, really, yeah. That it's about relationships. Yeah. Yeah. That basically the baggage we carry with us in life doesn't really matter. It's about the friendships that we form. Yeah. Where are you going with this? Well, just I just think that some things that used to matter don't matter so much, having heard that yeah. conversation. Things like neon signs. No, not having it. You're not fucking doing that. What? No, I've told you... I've told you, I've laid out a plain as fucking day. Yes? <laughs> these are the rules of engagement. Sorry, these were the rules of engagement. Were they not met? You knew the end was nigh. The end is nigh, this is nigh, the end. This is nigh, the end? <laughs> Sit down, this is nigh, me talking to ye, Bachi. It's been a wonderful run. I, I love you all. <laughs> and I, I tell you what. I tell you what, actually, because he warmed me and connected to me so hard and I felt connected with him, I'll give it one more week. Give us a month. Galwali has, has given me a bit of a kick up the arse. He's, he's given me that wake-up call to be like, hey, don't sweat the small stuff, all right? Let's concentrate on the slightly bigger stuff, okay? And with that in mind, I'm going to commit to the show, regardless of the neon sign, I will give you two months commitment and that's it alright two months because you you said previously to me Steve's two or three months to get a neon neon sign sorted I'll give you two months alright it's on the tighter side of the schedule it's two months or I'm a goner understood then it'll be the fucking Tom Fordyce show <laughs> which it pretty much is anyway because he just comes up with all the questions and expects me to be understanding about being ridiculed in front of our guest I'm sick of it who's on next week Joe, next week we have the manager of a hotel. We have a hotel manager. What's he do then? Um, He follows sausages and refugees, which is why this show is wonderful. We're going to get you a neon sign and it's going to be a massive cock and balls. (laughs) 
<laughs> Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Sports Social Podcast Network.